6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 10 through 14. Now we get to chapter 13, and we have a very interesting event that occurs, and for some reason, it has evoked all kinds of scholastic comment. And I'm kind of puzzled because it just somehow doesn't strike me that the issue is what all the fear is about. But let's go through and uh, and uh, uh, review what he says and then and, and talk about some of the implications. It's just a little object lesson, very similar to the kind of thing that we found in the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah, where the prophet is instructed to do something that has a a more you know a message to it. You remember how Ezekiel got a lot of these things, you know, lying your back one way and then the other way, and all these little things he did that apparently did ceremonially, quite public, as a way, an object lesson, a mechanic to instruct the people. Uh, Jeremiah gets one of these right here. There's several in Jeremiah, pretty interesting ones. This one's uh, uh, really kind of fundamentally pretty simple, but it's evoked a lot of comment. Chapter 13, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and purchase a linen belt, or girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I bought a belt according to the word of the Lord, put it on my loins, and the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the belt that thou hast bought, which is upon thy loins, and arise and go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went, and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass that after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take the belt from there, which I commanded thee to hide there. All right. So, so verse 7, Then I went to the Euphrates and digged, and I took the belt from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the belt was marred. It was profitable for nothing. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Like what you believe was mildewed. I mean, you know, linen wasn't supposed to be wet like that. So being a cleft of a rock near the river, it got wet. The wetness wrecked it. That's the point. It's marred. It's moldy. It's unusable. Now, the translation says linen belt. Some scholars believe that this was an intimate undergarment. With the priest wore you know, linen, you know, linen girdle. Or loin, it, it, it binds his loins. So the exact garment, there's some scholastic dispute of the exact issues, but and I won't get into all that, but but it's, it's, it's an intimate garment and, and so forth. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Anyway, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, even shall even be like this belt which is good for nothing. For as the belt clingeth to the loins of a man, so have I 
cause to cling unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. But they would not hear. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every wineskin shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto me, Do we not certainly know that every wineskin shall be filled with wine? The word is peroth, and is translated Euphrates here. And uh, the first question is, did he really do this, or is it just a vision? I don't know about you, but I couldn't care less, you know. But, I mean, I'm usually strict on those things, but in this case, there, there, there are commentaries that spend a lot of time trying to figure out, did he really do this, or is this just some kind of vision? What's the problem? Well, the Euphrates is hundreds of miles from where, from Jerusalem. And so they have a real problem. You mean that Jeremiah, to run this errand, goes over 100 miles? Two round trips, they say. Okay, well, the word is peroth, which is like the Ephrata, but with an initial letter missing. And so whether it was it, was it really Euphrates or not? If it wasn't, it was intended that we think it should. Now, there's some scholars that believe that the actual word is para, which is at Wadi Farah, which is only three miles northeast of Anathoth near Jerusalem. That's only about six miles. That makes more sense. And so there's a big bunch of discussion about that. First point. There was a lot of time during Jeremiah's ministry where there wasn't necessarily war. Between the first and third siege of Nebuchadnezzar is 19 years, and there's three major sieges and three major deportations and invasions. But there's a lot of time in between where there was peace, and secondly, a lot of evidence that Jeremiah had errands to run. There's an evidence that he went to and from Babylon, and this may have occurred when he was on one of these tra trips to go ahead and do this thing and then go to Babylon for some issue, and then come back. And so there's some scholars that, you know, I, why it's such a big deal, I don't know. So I may have missed the point, but I don't see why there's all that to do. There's three possibilities. One, some scholars feel it was just a vision, and, and you know, it was an idiomatic kind of way of communicating. I don't think so, personally. I think he really did this. And uh, was it Euphrates? I think so. But it, did it have to be? I don't think so. And so that's not a big deal in my mind, at least. The whole idea, though, is is that which is going to spoil them did come from Babylon, and the Euphrates is symbolic of Babylon, so that, that all sort of fits. And by the way, something else about these linen belts and linen undergarments, they were, a, they were an intimate garment, and they were a symbol of service to the priests. And you can find all that stuff in, uh, um, in fact, you'll find a, a symbol uh, that used symbolically as service in Luke 12, verse 35, and in John 13 and elsewhere, remember when he washes their feet, he takes his linen. It's a, a symbol of service. And for the priests, it was a symbol of service, okay? And in this case, they're unfit for service because they're marred and moldy and, and unusable. That's basically the concept, okay? Why were they moldy and stuff? Because of the influence of the Euphrates, i.e. Babylon, idolatry. See, there's a you can build on that, right? Oh, so if you're in this priest thing, uh, the priestly linen belts, you can find that in Exodus 19.6 and other places, for those of you that want to chase that down. So I personally see an identity with the Euphrates. If it wasn't the Euphrates, it was a name that looked closely enough that we would look at it as the Euphrates. Idiomatically, it would mean that. So if it, is, if it does turn out that it's six miles in southeast Jerusalem, fine. Linguistically, it acts like a pun because it's the concept of the Euphrates is, 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 emerges through this, Okay. But verse 9, see, ties it together where the Lord says, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. What manner? That they're going to be destroyed by these pagan invaders. 
Verse 11, of course, indicates four things the Lord wanted. He wanted for them to be a people and for a name and for praise and for glory, but they would not hear. Now, verse 12 through 14, a couple of verses here, uses another idiom. We're shifting now another kind of uh, way of expression. And my translation here in the English says wineskins. It's interesting because the best scholars say that the actual word used here is a jar, not a wineskin. No big deal. But it's interesting that the jars we're talking about, even though it's translated in the English wineskins because they were wine containers and they did use, you know, wineskins to contain wine. In this case, they were jars. They're 10-gallon jars, earthenware for wine storage. In Isaiah 30, 14 and other linguistic studies, they're about 10 gallons in size. And so uh, that's, that's at least uh, one scholar's view of this that seems like he knows what he's talking about. But anyway, verse 12, Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle, I think, your King James has, right? But some people say that word means wineskins. This is one place where the, the King James, I think, is more accurate. But in any case, um, shall be filled with wine. And they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every wineskin shall be filled with wine? Then thou shalt say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit upon David's throne, and the priests, and the prophets, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, with drunkenness. With drunkenness. There's four groups of people singled out. The kings, the priests, the false prophets, and the people. Kings, priests, false prophets, and the people. Okay, now this is anticipating a lot that's going to happen in Jeremiah 25 and 51, and on it goes, and I don't think we need to spend time here. But anyway, it goes, verse 14, I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. Hear and give ear, and be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God. Before he cause darkness and have your feet stumble upon the dark mountain. While ye look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eye shall weep bitterly and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive Boy, Jeremiah can express it when he wants to, can he? What's the source of the problem? Pride, right on. Exactly, pride. He makes that very ex expressive back in verse 9, but it's all the way to theme 3 here. Pride. That pride leads to what? Darkness. Okay. The concept of darkness and light being antithetical is introduced in Genesis chapter 1 and is a theme throughout the Scripture through Revelation 22. The light versus darkness. And there's three kinds of darkness in the Scripture, at least. There's the natural darkness of the unregenerate heart. That's the natural darkness. Okay, We find that mentioned in Ephesians 4.18. In our natural state, we're in darkness. That's a natural darkness from being an unregenerate heart. There's another kind of darkness. In fact, maybe we should look these important enough, so let's take this. I usually am deferring this, but let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says in Ephesians 4, and I'll pick it up actually on verse 18, but pick up a verse ahead to give you the flavor of the context here. Thus, say, 
This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Interesting. Same idea there, isn't there? Another way of describing pride, huh? Vanity of their mind. Verse 18, having the, under, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's our state, yours and mine in advance of the Holy Spirit, doing something supernatural. In the natural state, that's the best we got. The creation declares the glory of God, but it does not declare his plan of redemption. You can look at the, you can look at the heavens and the earth and science and learn about a creator, but you will never learn about a redeemer because the curse is on the creation and his redemption takes care of that curse. The only way you can learn about God's plan is by his supernatural revelation to you through his word by action of the Holy Spirit. Short of a supernatural event of the Holy Spirit, that's us, verse 18. Now, that's one kind of darkness, a natural darkness. A second kind of darkness is deliberate darkness, choosing darkness. Did you know you can choose darkness? You think? Can you imagine someone doing that? Turn to John chapter 3. Very interesting passage. John chapter 3, a lot in John chapter 3. It'll be hard to go in there and just get one thing and come running out. There's a, it's just a, a lot in John 3. It's one of those chapters you can take a poke at something and spend an hour in it. But John chapter 3, verse 19 is a provocative verse. John three nineteen, And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Right? By the way, just a footnote that'll be provocative. The word love there, right? You all know that there's three kinds of love, right? Eros, phileo, agapeo. Agapeo. Men agapeo, darkness, rather than light, because their deeds are evil. Well, gee, I thought agapeo meant divine love. The noun does. It's used that way. The verb means to be totally given over to, which is what you should be with respect to God, and he is to you. He's totally given over to you. He gave himself on a cross. But the word agapeo as a verb is used in the Greek to mean totally given over to. And here men, agapeo, darkness, rather than light. Can you imagine that? But don't be too critical. That's you and I, but for the whole action of the Holy Spirit. Why would we... Give ourselves over to darkness rather than light. Because our deeds are evil, we don't want to be accountable. When you get into an intellectual argument with an agnostic, but is there a creator or not? The issue is not intellectual. It's spiritual. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Not the intellectualist mind, the fool in his heart. Why? Because a creator implies accountability. And we don't want to be accountable. That's why evolution is popular. It's not because it's scientifically supported. It's a mechanism to allow us to, at least for a while, hide from accountability for our sin. Why are men love darkness rather than evil? Because their deeds are evil. Second, okay, natural darkness, deliberate darkness, and then there's a judicial darkness, and that's what we got here in Jeremiah 13. It's also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, we have a judicial darkness where God will send them strong delusion that they should do what? Believe the lie. Jeremiah is going to talk about the lie before we're through, too. 
by Jeremiah 13, 16. Three different kinds of art, natural, deliberate, and judicial. And here we're talking judicial. In verse 16, give glory to the Lord your God. He says, before he cause darkness. You mean God's going to cause darkness? Sure. Amos says, prophet Amos says, he will send them a famine, but not of meat, of the word. God is going to send a famine of his word at a certain time. Here he's going to cause darkness, and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains and so forth. There'll be a time coming that's going to be so deceptive that all but the supernaturally protected elect will be deceived. God permits it. In fact, sends it. Work for the night is coming. And while ye look for the light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Boy, Jeremiah can, uh, has a way with words when he wants to. Okay, verse uh, 17. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret places for your pride. Again, what's the cause? Pride. What caused the original sin? It wasn't Adam's, it was Satan's. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are your references. What caused Satan to fall? His five I wills in Isaiah 14, 12, and whatever. And uh, uh, the pride. That's why God hates pride. It was through that that sin entered into the creation. My, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eyes shall weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. In Jeremiah's eyes he can see his nation carried away as slaves. Verse 18, Say unto the king and unto the queen, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. And the cities of the Negev shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive of it, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. The extent of the whole idea of the Negev, the south, um, I assume it goes all the way down to Beersheba or whatever, is the extent of the captivity. It's not local, it's total as far as what's coming. It's interesting. Say unto the king and to the queen. You don't see that mentioned very much. King Jehoiachin and his mother Nehushta. Now, why would your queen be mentioned? Because he was only 18. He only reigned for three months. She was very influential. Very interestingly, when there's polygamy, the specific women apparently get influential and have some leverage. Surprisingly. They were carried away in the first deportation about 597 B.C. This is in 2 Kings 24, which gives a rough feeling for the dating of this passage. And... Uh, but I don't think we need to beat that up. Let's just keep moving. Verse 20, lift up your eyes and behold those who come from this north, who is the flock that has given thee thy beautiful flock. What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains and as a chief over thee. Shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail? Now, it's a couple of comments, and I think they're being repetitive, but the enemies come from the north. That doesn't mean they're northern enemies. Don't be confused with Ezekiel where it says they come from the uttermost part of the north. They're the northern enemies. Their enemies always came from the northern part because it's the only way to get around the Arabian Desert. So the Babylon is actually eastward, but it attacks them from the north. Enemies always did, even today. You know, the Golan Heights is to the northern part, right? Now, uh, it's also interesting to me how these prophets always seem to use, or the Lord uses through the prophets, this phrase, like a woman in travail, the birth pangs, even none other than Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 in his famous Olivet Discourse uses the same idiom, same expression, or I should say uses it again. Verse 22, And if thou say in thine heart, Why come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity 
for the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts uncovered and are thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? <laughs> Isn't that contemporary language? You know, you've all heard that expression, haven't you? It sounds offensive. You know, can the Ethiopian change his skin? You've heard it in other vernacular. Well, it's interesting. That's out of Jeremiah 13. Strange expression. My apologies if someone's offended by it. it ain't my words. It's Jeremiah's. And, of course, verse 22 is a little risque, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't get into, into that more. But uh, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. In other words, he's saying you guys are so corrupt, so committed to evil, that your chance of doing good is equivalent to a leopard changing spots. Remember that the next time you shave yourself, guys. That's you and I, too. We don't like to believe that, but boy, the Lord tells us that. We are no better but by the grace of God and by the action of the Holy Spirit. Lots of, lots of verses to put that on, so, uh, on us. And so recognize that, admittedly, they are in deep trouble and irrevocably headed to captivity. But recognize, before we get too judgmental, that but for the grace of God, there go we ourselves. Verse 24, therefore, will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I uncover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. This was a mechanism of, of, of shaming a prostitute, it was a razor skirt, and, and that's what he's saying in effect, figuratively speaking. He looks at Judah as a prostitute. He's going to shame them the same way, figuratively speaking. Verse 27, I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings, the lewdness of thine harlotry and thine abomination on the hills in the fields. What's he talking about? Idol worship. And he's describing it as, um, as uh, harlotries. There's two dimensions to that. There's a practical, vivid one. They, their idolatry, the Canaanite idol worship was involved with orgies and, and sexual excess of all indescribable kinds. But there's also another issue, and that is it's considered spiritual. They're, they're going whoring after false gods. They're be faithful to him, and they weren't. So there's both a, 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 a physical aspect of it, but there's also, perhaps far more important, the spiritual aspect. They had sought after another God, not him. I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings. This is like a like a overheated, you know, stallion or a mare, you know. The lewdness of thine harlotry and thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? The agony of Jeremiah is that he's torn between the certainty of their judgment. He knows it's coming. God's told it. He knows it's coming. There's no doubt. And the hope that it might be averted. If they'll just listen and repent. Can you imagine the anguish in his soul? That's tough. Judah is facing an enemy, the Babylonian army. What do they need? to defeat the Babylonian army. More arms, more chariots, more foot soldiers, more cavalry. 
They need repentance. I wonder what the United States needs to, to enjoy her national security. Interesting question. Chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, 14 and 15 are sort of a unit. We won't make them both, but we'll go as far as we can just to make use of the time, keep moving here. But we're talking about famine. But the famine here is two kinds, temporal, real, I mean, you know, tangible, so to speak. I shouldn't use the word real. That's not the word I want. Uh, the palpable, touchable, feeling kind of famine. And the spiritual famine from within. Both are mixed together here. It's a very difficult passage to date for those of you trying to do that. It's probably the fourth year of Jehoiakim, but we're not sure because there are many deportations and invasions and so on, so we won't try to unravel that one. Another issue to get a feeling before we jump into this is the fact that Judah was dependent upon rainfall. You and I take that for granted. Farmers are dependent upon rain. That was not true in Egypt or Mesopotamia. We forget that. In Egypt, they, they farmed by an overflowing of the Nile. They had a river. That was one reason they were so prosperous in those early cultures, because they had, so to speak, the reliability of the river. It was also had its problems, but not as chancy, so to speak, as rainfall. Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, again, rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates. Judah was dependent upon rainfall. So there were droughts. We find droughts all through here, uh, very common. In Genesis 12, Ruth 1, first, uh, 2 Samuel 21, 1 Kings 8, lots of places drought fa uh, plays a major part in our history. Now, droughts are threatened. In Deuteronomy 28, they're threatened for disobedience. So Israel was used to the idea that rainfall or the absence of it was God's way of rewarding or punishing them. That wasn't some superstition. That's exactly what God told them in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere. Okay. And as an Israeli author mentioned, and this is something else but I've never forgotten, you know, coincidence or chance is not a kosher word. Everything in their land was ordained by God. And so in, in 14, we're going to talk about a drought. And you have to understand as you read this that um, uh, the, you know, the dependency on rainfall is something they were very conscious of. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.